Alright, we are going to be in Judges chapter 4 this week. Finally broke the end of chapter 3, and we're going to be in chapter 4 for a number of weeks. So, um, Judges chapter 4, and I'll be starting in verse 1, and we're just going to be reading till verse 9. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hagoyim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labadoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand of them from Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So that is the first section of this uh, text that we're going to be exploring. Uh, The idea, Lord willing, is going to be to break it up over the course of three weeks uh, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so next week we'll take on uh, the battle section of this text. Uh, But this is the longest story you've had in Judges so far, so I think it's appropriate to take some time with it. The title of this study is Deborah's Prophecy, um, because the main body of what we're going to be focusing on is that uh, prophecy that you see Deborah uh, give to Barak uh, when she exhorts him to lead the people out of their uh, oppression. So the first thing that you're going to see in the text is the natural repetition of sin uh, for the people of Israel. You'll see that right off the bat. It's the same thing we've read now several times in Judges. It says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And to remember, if you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we explored Ehud and his deliverance of the people. He's the guy who stabs King Eglon and uh, is essentially assassinates him and then leads the people to victory over uh, their oppressors. And now after Ehud's reign is over, after that period of 80 years of rest, Ehud passes away. And we're told that, at that it is at that point in time that the people once again return to their sin. And this is something we've talked about earlier. The people of Israel are very stubbornly bent towards their same sinfulness. They like their idolatry. And as soon as that judge, whoever God has raised up to deliver them, passes away, they're like children in a classroom who go to disobedience when their teacher leaves. I think that was something that uh, Justin pointed out a a number of weeks ago, is uh, they they just kind of had this natural inclination towards disobedience. And that shouldn't surprise us, because if you explore uh, even your own life and your own history, Uh, you'll recognize that the same kind of sin that troubles you is the same boring, monotonous kind of sin that you always commit. The people of Israel are bent towards idolatry. That's the same sin. And that sin hasn't changed the last four times they've screwed up. But that shouldn't surprise us because for each of us, we have a sin like that. That is the one that particularly uh, has a grip on our hearts. That's particularly part of the old nature. And so we shouldn't be shocked by the fact that it's the same kind of sin. Eventually, uh, sin gets boring. It's, there's nothing new about it. There's nothing novel about it. It's the same kind of stagnant disobedience that they partake in. So as we read them, we, we can observe something about our own lives from that, which is 
they are like us in that same way. They have their bend towards idolatry and we have our bend towards our sins as well. In fact, if you look at the New Testament authors, when Paul writes to the, the churches, it seems that each church has its own kind of struggle and Paul has to continually exhort the church to stay away from that particular kind of struggle. It's not the same for every church, but every church, whatever that struggle is, they have to be continually reminded to stay away from disobedience and walk in faithfulness to God. And it's the same kind of thing that they're always being warned about. And so you see that here with the people of Israel as well. Their sin is repetitive, uh, it's stale, uh, and nevertheless, it finds its way into their hearts and into their lives, and then they once again walk away from God. The other thing we can observe about this text thus far is after Ahud died marks 80 years of peace, right? We saw that um, in verse 30 of chapter 3. It says, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And something we've observed so far is in the book of Judges, when there's rough times, it produces people who are more obedient, more faithful, more longing for God, and then God produces deliverance. And the peaceful times produce what we can observe to be weak people, people who become more apathetic and more complacent. And this shouldn't be new this deep in the book of Judges, because that's actually, when we start the book of Judges, we, we notice that pattern. Joshua has led the people of Israel into a period of relative peace. They've conquered most of the promised land. And it's at that point of peace that the people of Israel begin to settle. They stop conquering all the lands they're supposed to. They start to become apathetic. And again, that shouldn't surprise us, because peace produces seasons of apathy. That's the same thing if you look at church history. The church is mighty in Reformation when there's heresy fighting the church, when there's oppression, when there's governmental force on the church, then the church seems to thrive. And then in periods of church history where the church seems to be the dominant religion of the land, the, the church becomes relatively apostate very quickly, only in a matter of years. And to examine that, you don't need to go very far back. You can look at American church history and you can look at mainline denominations and you can see that same kind of trend. It starts off faithful. And then when the culture generally accepts it and the church becomes generally apathetic, generally accepting of lots of doctrine, then the church becomes mildly disobedient, mildly apathetic. And then that trend continues until you have churches that deny the inerrancy of scripture, deny core tenets of the Christian faith. And that's a trend that we see even going back to Israel. The peace leads to periods of apathy and almost complacency. And that's what leads to them returning back to their old sin. So Israel has the same kind of pattern that we shouldn't look at Israel and judge them. We can look at Israel and we can see that same kind of pattern repeated in our own lives, even in our own churches, as we, as we walk out uh, this Christian walk. And so we, we see that early on in the text. And so the natural response is the same thing that we've always uh, seen uh, here, is that the Lord is going to sell them into the hands of now a foreign king. In this case, it's Jabin, king of Canaan, or Jabin, king of Canaan. He reigns in Hazor. Uh, if you have like a study Bible, you might have a map that'll point out all the different locations of this. Uh, it's rel it's rel roughly on the north side of the promised land. So the tribes that are going to be affected by this are the tribes that are on the north side. So you'll see Ephraim and Naphtali mentioned in this text. That's because they're the tribes that are locally close to where this king comes from. So if the whole land is subdued, they're going to feel it most closely because they're closest, uh, as it were, to where this king lives. So this king comes from Hazor. And we're told uh, an interesting detail that the commander of his army is Sisera. Now, if you know the story, for example, of David, uh, you know that David also has a commander of his army. The commander of his army is Joab. And it's important to, to point this out because David is essentially the ruler and the leader, but the, the muscle uh, who carries out the will of the king is the general of the army. So Joab can do things that David can't do because Joab is the general of the army. He commands the armed forces directly. And so Joab is responsible for making decisions like that. And in this case, while the king is almost like a big figure who rules over Canaan, 
Sisera is the one who's directly responsible for oppressing and subduing the Israelites. Thus, when God delivers the people through the prophecy, you'll notice the king himself isn't mentioned. It's Sisera who gets mentioned as the one who's going to fall. And when Sisera falls, this marks the fall of the might of this foreign army. So Sisera is an important person. And you'll notice uh, there's this pronoun in verse 5. It says, he, he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now that he refers to Sisera, not to the king and not to God. And that's confusing for us as English readers because the he comes after it references the Lord. So it says uh, in verse three, it says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help for he had 900 chariots of iron. That he does not refer to the Lord. It refers back to Sisera. And so you're going to see then the second kind of thing we can draw out of the text is what we would call a sinful oppression of the people. So Sisera is responsible for an unusually cruel kind of oppression of the people. And we have some things that indicate that to us. The first is that it says he oppressed the people, which is different language than we've gotten thus far in the book. So far we've seen they've been sold into slavery. They were, you know, they were under the hand of this king. They were subdued by this king. But not yet has the word oppressed been used until this moment. And so it, it, it indicates to us a unique kind of subjugation, a special kind of pain that the people experienced during their oppression. The, the judge, the author of the book of Judges chooses this word to let us know the kind of oppression that they experience, the kind of judgment that they experience. So Sisera oppresses them. And not only does he oppress them, it says he oppresses them cruelly. And he does so for the longest period of time so far, 20 years. The last most longest was 18 years before that. I think it was eight years. And so you have the people going for a longer period of time, more cruel oppression at the hands of a, a, a very wicked person who directly commands an armed military group. And so between all of those things, uh, we can see that this kind of sinful oppression is something that will drive the people of Israel to despair. And you'll notice that uh, there's, this, there's a detail here. It says he has 900 chariots of iron. Now for us, chariots of iron aren't scary because we have things like tanks and airplanes and things like that in modern warfare. But uh, for the people of Israel, remember that at the time that this, this happens, uh, there's a poem in uh, chapter 5 that's like the victory song. And it tells us in chapter 5, verse 8, that at this time of the land, there's not even a spear or a sword among 40,000 people in Israel. So having an, a tank or a chariot of iron is equivalent to having a tank against people who are essentially unarmed. It's, it's that kind of unlevel playing field. So 900 tanks is like, or 900 chariots is like having 900 tanks. So that people can't, they really don't stand a chance against this, this armed force. So the, the author, the narrator is setting up the, the scene, how desperate the people are. They're oppressed. There's no hope for military victory. They're essentially being uh, crushed by the people of the land. And so this sets up a kind of desperation. And you'll notice that out of this desperation, they cry out once again to the Lord for help. And what you see is the, the gentleness of God correcting them because uh, what, you're, what you notice in the text is it's better for the people of Israel to be oppressed which drives more of a kind of faithfulness out of them than it is for them to be uh, apathetic and uh, apostate. So it's better to be oppressed and faithful than it is to be um, in, in a season of peace, but running into an apostate direction. That's what we notice from the people of Israel. In fact, God seems to be more pleased when the people desire him than he is when they have a period of peace, but they're running after the Baals, after the Asheroth. So that's something we can observe and maybe something we can notice even in our own lives that Favor from God doesn't always manifest itself in, a term, in terms of blessing. Sometimes it manifests itself in terms of God driving us through his punishment uh, back to him, back to faithfulness. In fact, suffering is one of the greatest tools God uses to help mold us and shape us and guide us uh, to desperation, to falling again before him. 
and uh, having peace uh, typically leads us to apathy. It typically leads us away from God and towards uh, self-sustenance. And so just, just keep that in mind because when we get into parts of the New Testament, uh, we, we tend to believe that when we see evil or suffering going on, that means that God's hand is not at work. And typically that's actually a good indicator that his hand is at work because he's molding and shaping his people through that pain that they experience. So we notice uh, the, the sinful oppression that they endure. And then uh, you're going to see uh, God's salvation, which is going to be predicted uh, starting in verse 4. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, or Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under a palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel of the hill country of Ephraim. So she's part of this northern tribe. She's currently judging the people of Israel. Um, and it says, The people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now, I think a few weeks ago we mentioned we don't, we're not exactly sure what a judge is in Israel. It's hard to tell because some of them are like military leaders with very little emphasis on spiritual leadership. Deborah is kind of in the opposite direction where she is actually not a military leader, as it were. She actually recruits other people for military leadership. But she seems to be uh, more of a spiritual leader of the people of Israel, more uh, as, it, as it is in here. She's a prophetess, which means she hears directly from God. She prophesies the words of God. So she's like having direct access to Yahweh. And so she kind of fits the mold in the other direction. And from this point forward, you're going to meet judges who are not at all qualified for spiritual leadership and barely qualified for military leadership. So she's kind of the last hurrah, as it were, in this book uh, before it goes straight downhill. <laughs> so, uh, but you find her judging the people of Israel during this time of oppression. It seems that she has risen to a kind of prominence in the land. Uh, and it's interesting that she's a female because that might have for the other king given, uh, given him like a non-threatening vibe from her. Like he allows her to have authority and power because he's not threatened by her. Whereas if there was a male person doing this, he might have felt threatened by the amount of respect and, uh, and dignity that they would have amassed from the people. But at least uh, as, we, as we see it here, she's allowed to kind of gain this kind of uh, respect from the people. And so uh, it, we're told that at some point in time uh, during her rule over Israel, uh, in verse 6, she summons for Barak, the son of Abinadab from Kadesh Nathali, and she says to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by your hand. So she asks him a question, and this is going to paint the picture of what God's salvation is like, because you'll notice the first person pronouns referring to God. It says, I will draw out Sisera. And then if you look again in verse, uh, uh, the back half of verse 7, it says, and I will give him into your hand. So God is saying that he's going to do the victory. He's going to do the work. And all Barak has to do is essentially lead people uh, into battle against Sisera. So you have God's salvation. God is clearly on the, the fingerprints of him are all over the story because he's the one moving. And it, that we get the interpretation on the front end before we see the events unfold that it's God's hand that's at work. And we're going to look in the battle next week. Um, how you see that come more fully into light, more fully into focus. Um, but we'll save that for next time. Um, but what you see here is uh, God's salvation comes through uh, his hand. He's going to lead Sisera out. He's going to draw him out. But the question that's asked is, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you to go? And that's a, a, a Hebrew way of speaking that's not actually saying that Barak has heard this and been unfaithful. Well, for example, if you think of a person like Jonah, he hears the command of God and he decides he's not going to listen. He goes the other direction. We're not supposed to understand this question as somehow Barak has heard the command of God and then he just kind of didn't listen and now Deborah's kind of calling him to account. Uh, it's more likely that she's asking the question in the same way that Jesus says, have you not heard or have you not seen it written? It's like, it's you have or you feel this or this is something that 
is true. It's like a declarative statement. So it's a way of speaking that says the Lord, so she's essentially summoning him. She's saying the Lord has called you and commanded you to go and gather your men. So this is his summons to, to battle. This is his summons to deliver the people. And he's told uh, to go and gather these people. Uh, and then God's told, he's told that God is going to work on his behalf. And then in verse eight, we see his response. And he says to her, I will go with, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And then here we have uh, something that translators find difficulty with, which is, um, is this a good thing on behalf of Barak? Is, is, he, is he operating out of faith when he does this? Or is he operating out of a lack of faith when he says he won't go unless Deborah goes with him? Well, it's difficult to discern. Uh, the thing that makes it difficult is in Hebrews, Barak is listed as one of the people who exercises faith in the hall of faith to subdue people, conquer armies, and essentially be the hand of God. And there's other instances in scripture where people say they won't go and do what God says unless God sends essentially a prophet with them to go help them along. So you can think of Moses, for example, who gets called by God to lead the people out of slavery. And then he asks for Aaron to come with him. And we don't discredit all of what Moses does after that point just because he decided he needed Aaron to help him along. We notice that that's not a full act of faith, but that doesn't discredit everything he does after that point. In the same way, uh, if you remember in chapter one of the book of Judges, uh, verse two, three, and four, uh, we see that Judah is told to go up to the land to conquer it. And then Judah asks Simeon, his brother, to come with him. He says, I'll go if Simeon goes with me. And we're not, the, judge, the narrator doesn't tell us that in a negative light. So it'd be hard for us to, between both of those accounts that we've had previously, to come here and say that uh, Barak is operating out of a lack of faith when he asks Deborah to come with him. In fact, Barak is actually probably saying something what Saul should have done, which is Saul should have waited for Samuel before he engaged the Philistines in war. That's actually the reason Saul gets his kingdom stripped away from him, because he doesn't wait for the prophet of God to come with him to lead the people to victory. He actually takes that on himself. And so Barak is saying that I will go as long as the person who's the representative head of God comes with me. As long as this person is with me, the prophetess is with me, I know that the Lord hand is with me as well, so then I will go and fight. So he's actually asking kind of for God's approval the whole time. And then we see that he actually goes. Now, that leads us to kind of the final point, the, the prophecy, uh, which we see is predicted before the events unfold. The prophecy you see there in verse eight, um, when, or sorry, in verse nine, she responds to Barak and she says, surely I will go with you. So she doesn't chastise him for what just happened. She says, surely I will go with you. And then she says this phrase, she says, nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, often that is the part of the text that for us says, oh, Barak just screwed up. So he's not going to get the glory for the battle. Therefore, we can read kind of back into the text that he somehow, you know, exercised a lack of faith. But what is interesting is in other points of scripture, uh, that we have judges that act uh, in faith on behalf of God. And nevertheless, God says, I'm, I'm going to work out this battle in such a way that it will be clear to you that you're not getting the glory, I'm getting the glory. In fact, this is the same thing that happens to Moses when he leads the people out of slavery. God says, God essentially puts them up against the Red Sea. And then when they're at like their final hour and they cry out to God, he says, I'm, I'm going to do this so that everyone can know that it's my hand that delivered you, not your hand. And that's not bad on Moses' part. That's God orchestrating events to bring himself glory, right? He's making it clear that it's not because of their military might. It's because of his sovereignty. Same thing here. Uh, we see that God's going to deliver Sisera, this great military general, into the hands of a woman, which is like a huge subversion uh, of Sisera's leadership. And it's probably the most fitting way for him to die because it's very disrespectful. In fact, it, later in the book of Judges in chapter 10, there's a man that we meet who is going into battle against a city. 
and he gets his head crushed by a, a woman who throws a millstone out of like a tower. And as he's dying, he's bleeding out on the ground. He, sa he says to like his, his, uh, one of his fellow soldiers, he says, please stab me so no one tells anyone that I was killed by a woman. So this is like a very disrespectful thing that, it, that would happen to Sisera. And uh, later, Sisera is killed by a woman, which we'll talk about two weeks from now. Um, and it's, it's very uh, ironic. It's very good. But the prophecy leads us to understand that God is orchestrating these events for his own glory. And if you want to kind of draw this straight into uh, the New Testament, we notice that this isn't something God only does in the Old Testament. He also does it in the New. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that if, if the Christians look around and they survey the room, and they see that the, their calling is such that not many of them are wise, not many of them are strong, because God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God shows the things that are nothing to put to shame the things that are. The whole point is God's getting glory for himself, not glory for his people. He's getting his own glory. And it's clear to everyone in the room that God is the one who's working, not man. Because the church moves and proliferates when it's the weakest. And that's true of the early church. And that's not supposed to be something bad because that draws glory to God. In fact, uh, earlier in that same text in 1 Corinthians, uh, we see that the, God, the reason God chooses weak people is for the purpose of bringing himself glory. So no one can boast in themselves. No one can boast in their own, uh, their own calling. They have to boast if they're going to boast in the Lord. And that's the same thing we get in the New Testament. That's the same thing that's happening here in the book of Judges. God is saying, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you victory. But I'm going to bring you victory that's going to bring me glory. And no one will be able to say that you beat Sisera and somehow Israel's stronger. What they're going to be, have to say, surely God was at work in this victory. And as we move through the text next week and the following week, you're going to see that fingerprint all over the passage as we move through it. So let me close this in prayer, and then we can open this up for discussion. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this time. Lord, you've uh, certainly been good to us to give us um, time in the evenings to give us uh, places to gather, uh, to give us uh, copies of your word to open up and to study. Lord, we thank you for all of those uh, blessings and all those privileges. Uh, you are a God unlike any other God who is delighted to reveal himself to his people. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be uh, students of your word, that we would uh, sit at your feet and learn from you, um, and that we would not be uh, too arrogant to think we know everything, but that we would be um, willingly taught by your spirit, God. Uh, we ask for that, and uh, we pray that you would uh, meet us in that. Lord, we ask all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.